Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Years ago, when I was still working in financial services, my boss asked me to take on a small team of people that was being led by a peer manager. On paper, it made sense to move these employees into my group, and my boss was very clear. She wasn't displeased with my colleagues' leadership. She just wanted better organizational alignment. So on the day the move was announced, I sat down with my peer and I asked him to tell me a little about the employees I was inheriting. And I happened to be already familiar with a few of the affected people and specifically asked him to tell me about these two people with whom I'd never met. And he easily and graciously could have told me a few complimentary things about these employees, knowing that I'd already planned to go meet them in the next few days. But instead, he made the assertion that both of them had long ago peaked and I was best off to just leave them alone and let them muddle along. And he couldn't have been more wrong. For the next several years, those two people became star performers for me. Neither of them proved to lack any potential. What they lacked was a manager who believed they were unlimited and who would challenge them to contribute in ways that would deeply fulfill them and allow them to make their own meaningful dent in the organization. I very recently read a wonderful book called The Power of Onlyness, written by our guest today, Nilifer Merchant. And in it, she expresses a rather expansive idea about human beings, that each of us possesses a truly unique view of the world tied to our own life's experiences, history, visions, and hopes. And from the spot where we only stand, We can offer novel insights, make great contributions, and maximize our full human potential. Too many people in our world wish that they had the ability to make a difference, but they feel they lack the credentials or they aren't high enough in their organization to have their ideas heard. But Nilifer's own remarkable life story, which you're about to hear, shaped her view that each of us, not to mention all the people we lead and manage, possess great power in our personal onlyness. And our ideas not only matter, they can make a true difference in the world. As I'm guessing you've already realized, you're in for a rather inspiring conversation, but let me first introduce our guest. Miller for Merchant has personally launched more than 100 products netting $18 billion in sales. She's worked for companies including Apple and Autodesk and recently was named to the venerable Thinkers 50 list. She's written two other books, and her 2013 TED Talk, Sitting is the Smoking of Our Generation, ranks in the top 10% of TED's most viewed talks. Quite impressive, I must say, and I'm very excited to have you join us, Nilifer Merchant. So glad to be with you, Mark. Well, thank you. So I read your book, and we've actually postponed this a couple times. It's just only done one thing for me, which is to make me more anxious to ask my very first question. So in your book, you gave us a story that is really remarkable. At 18 years old, you were beginning college and you were very excited about getting your education. You made that very clear. And when you learned that a marriage had been arranged for you, so apparently your dad was no longer in your life and Mm -hmm. you were required to marry an Indian divorcee with three children. So this was at your mom's request. And in Western culture, this idea that parents choose their children's future spouse is pretty much unheard of. But, and you make this point in your book, even today, arranged marriages account for an overwhelming majority of unions in India, which still surprises me. But 
even though your mother would have been given a free house and apparently set up financially for life had you married this man, you ran away. And up until the time you wrote your book, you hadn't returned to see your mother for three decades. So what's clear from the book is that life worked out rather well for you after you fled. But you didn't tell us how you survived this ordeal. And that's what I was really wanting to know is like, how did you make it through? And how did you get through college? And how did this experience shape who you would go on to become? So let's start there. Fill in all these gaps. Okay. So first of all, I didn't mean to run away. I thought that I was negotiating for one question to be asked on my behalf. So the man was a rich divorcee himself, and I knew that he had a nanny and a house cleaner and so on. And so I was pretty sure that he wasn't hiring me to do any of those roles. He was, you know, basically like he wanted a wife and uh, he didn't want a house cleaner. And so I was like, well, just ask him. And if you ask him, it saves me a year. And all I wanted my family to do was to ask the guy if I could get an education so I could basically pursue my goals. And I thought the entire conversation was going to last about five minutes. And I didn't even think I'd make it to the end of the driveway. So in the book, I write the story about how I pack something like, you know, five books and two outfits, no toothbrush. And I, I start walking with by the box that doesn't even have a lid. Right. So I'm just like clearly not serious about this thing. Hmm. And I start walking down the driveway. I don't even I actually imagined I remember back then I thought she would stop me at the door. And so imagine my surprise when I make it all the way to the end of the driveway. and She still hasn't stopped me. And I don't have a plan beyond walking out the door. I did not have a plan. And the reason that's important is I was basically trying to assert a nominal amount of my own voice into the systemic understanding that I had no voice. And the reason that story is important is because here I am relatively powerless in a, in a society that says girls' opinions don't matter and belonging is a matter of you doing what the family wants. And so then the very next thing I basically tell in the book is that this desire then to have power ends up shaping the next 10 years of my career. And I basically am looking at the scene where I had no power and I become homeless overnight. And I can tell you more of that story in a minute, but I become homeless overnight and have no money to my name, literally nothing, right? So I'm disowned and I'm homeless and pretty hungry at that moment too. And thinking, okay, my job then is to get me some of that power. And so the story I tell next in the book is about how at Autodesk, I get into a conflict at work. I'm running the America's division from a revenues perspective. So at this point, I've, I've run like a $300 million division. And I am actually the person responsible for the revenues line. And there's $40 million of it that's at risk, in my opinion, when the marketing team basically doesn't decide the same strategy as I want. And I throw this person under the bus because what I had learned early was there's only so much power to be had that it's either you or them. And we go through this turnstile of advancement one person at a time. It's, you know, binary. And that so informed my perspective of power and belonging and how agency actually worked that I was like, well, then if it's about you or me, it's going to be me. I'm going to vote me. And, and only at that moment of making that terrible decision, because in the book I write about how she was my then best friend, I had run marathons with her, really made me rethink, is there another way, right? So it wasn't even that I said, I didn't like this so much. I mean, I didn't, but it was that I sat there and thought, if it's always, and this is what the American culture in general kind of operates with, is there's only so much power to be had that we have to pick who gets to win. And what we mostly tell people 
is that your voice matters, not that each of our voices matter. And there ought to be a different way. And those two stories juxtaposed against each other is really why I started the search for onlyness. Why, you know, it's a 20-year arc of a story to basically go, is there another way for us to be in the world? Okay, so this is where I got stuck in the book because I wanted you to tell me how you got from A to Z meaning you walk down the driveway, you've got no belongings, you're pretty much thinking, I'm going to be back there in about an hour. And your mom doesn't stop you, right? And now all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, like I'm emancipated. I'm not going to marry this guy. I'm not going to have, you know, be a stepmom to these children. And not only that, but, you know, I'm walking into an uncertain future at 18 years old. Mm -hmm. And so we'll get into this in a minute. But I had the exact same experience. I wasn't forced to be married, but I was kicked out of the house at 18 years old. And Mm -hmm. that was one of the, that is the most difficult portion of my life. And so you Mm -hmm. maneuvered it. And I think, you know, when I speak, people come up to me and say, you know, I had similar experiences, which startles me because you think, well, you know, how many people have that kind of an experience? But people have difficult upbringings. So I'm just curious as to, Like, what did you do next? And how did you figure it out? How did you get through school? And how did you get to starting this great career? Well, so just the sort of tactical thing, you know, we always sort of talk about it in such binary things. But like that first hour, I'm like, "Uh, okay, maybe this will take a few hours, right? So it it doesn't go from I'm disowned. It takes a little while for that story to unfold. And in the meantime, I went down to the office. So at the time, I was student body treasurer at Deanza College, which is this local community college like a mile, maybe two miles from my house. So I walked down there with this box and figured, okay, well, at least I can sleep on the couch and there's a toilet down the hall and, you know, tomorrow morning will bring a different outcome. And at one point I called my sister who was already married, arranged marriage, and said, hey, will you go over to mom's house and talk to her? And my mother, she's a lovely person in her own way, but um, says something like, she's going to kill herself if I don't come back. So then my sister calls me and says, you know, relays the story. And I go, well, are you really worried? You know, my sister and I were very real with each other to this day. Are you worried? And she's like, not really. And I go, well, if you're at all worried, like you should go over there. You know, like I'm not going to back up. You should come and pitch in. And like two days later or something, I'm just still like in this sort of weird quandary about, I'm sure this is going to get resolved. I'm absolutely sure of it because I'm like, you can't get the whole house. And all I'm asking for is you to ask a question. It doesn't seem like an unreasonable request. So I still think I'm going to win like a couple days later. And my dean of the college, who's basically responsible for the student body group, happens to overhear me talking about it or something and says, what's going on? And I explain it. And he walks into the financial aid office with me, like kind of just towing me behind him, you know, kind of thing. And he says, can you hand her a check for, I don't know what he asked for, 500, 600 bucks, something. And uh, can you just hand her a check? And I'll vouch for it and we'll figure it out later kind of thing. And he was just trying to make sure like, you know, I could eat and maybe, you know, whatever, like, you know, the, the basics could be provided wow. for, right? And uh, and I remember because at the time, I mean, that was a lot of money. It was 19, oh my gosh, I'm dating myself, 1986, I think at this point. And uh, it was a lot of money. I, I mean, that would have taken me a long time to earn it, whatever, 12 bucks an hour or whatever I was earning. So I was like, no, 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 I'm not good for it. I remember totally having that moment like, I don't know how in the world I would possibly pay you back. So don't give me the money. And he's like, yeah, 
this is not an acceptable solution and I'm vouching for you and we'll figure it out, you know? So it really was a very social act of someone saying, this is unreasonable that you're having to be sort of back up against the wall and I'll back you and help you get out of this mess. And it probably took a week or two to kind of realize it wasn't going to get resolved the way any of us thought it would. And then the Dean of Admissions, because I was a student by a treasurer, I knew a bunch of people on campus and I had a couple relationships already in place. The Dean of Admissions just happened to know me, a guy named Lou Ham. And uh, I explained to him what's going on, the scene. And he says, oh, well, we've got to get you a job. Let's get you a job. And he sends me to a couple people on campus and says, I know a couple people who are looking for things. And so I ended up becoming the accountant for the California History Museum, which was based on campus. I got a job as an usher for Flint Center, which is a performing arts theater on campus which meant also, by the way, you could see all the speakers come through, which is actually one of the best gigs. And what else did I do? Oh, I program in basic for what was the Office of Matriculation, which turns out to be, by the way, how community colleges now transfer students is the application and program that I coded so that you could say this course matches this course anywhere in the state of California. And what was the fourth job? I have to think about it for a second because it was something related to food and I'm just trying to think where it was. But you had some angels step in to kind of make sure that your life was going to be supported. It's kind of what I'm hearing. You know, what's so interesting is when I wrote Social Era, which was the book I wrote in 2012 with Harvard, I wrote a book called The 11 Rules for Creating Value in the Social Era. And it was in contrast to how much people were talking about social media. And I was like, you're totally missing the larger point is it's not about a marketing technology. It's about a way for us to be able to connect. Mm -hmm ideas and co-creative processes and so on. And when I would talk about that book, people would say, what do you mean by social? And I thought it was the strangest question because social is how we relate to each other. And I remember just a bunch of people, you call them angels, but I think about it as just as part of this community already, I just didn't realize how much a part of the community I was. And they were basically seeing one of their own, right? If you think about it, the Dean of Admissions, who is working at a community college so that people who traditionally don't get an education can. And he's watching me want an education more than I wanted my own family. And he's saying, I got to help the girl out, right? Because what is our common purpose? Not everybody steps up like that, though, Noah, for, you know. No, I mean, I, I get that. I get that. Totally. I'm, I'm giving him credit. Overhearing a conversation and going into the till and saying, you know, give her some money so that she can. I look at that and it makes me kind of wonder, like, do you think all this happened for a reason? So I mentioned that when I was 18, I had a very uncommon upbringing. And without getting into the details of it, a couple of days after high school graduation, my father just said, this is it. You're on your own. And literally it was on my own. And it came as quite the same shock. Like I wasn't anticipating it. I thought I'm going off to college and now I'm completely independent. And you know, I don't know how I survived it. I look back at it and I just still don't. And I don't know why professors, you know, like I, I'm relating to the person that gave you the money because I had some professors that were looking at me like, you know, we're going to try to help this guy. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm getting even being paid attention to. But for the most part, I really struggled. And so as I was reading your book, I'm thinking about like, how did she go from there to here? I wonder. Well, and I, and I want to just slow down, Mark. So okay. it's interesting that the way you just tell that story is you had to go from zero to 60, right? And be independent. And it's true that you were isolated from that group, your father, but you were also deeply interdependent to another. 
And I want to point that out because sometimes when we tell ourselves it's about the story of me instead of it's a story of us, I think we miss an opportunity to actually make the lesson more transferable, which is who is us? And this is the thing, right? So of course that Dean of Admission didn't have to do what he did, but what he saw was his values being lived out. What your teacher saw was someone who was part of something larger. And this is so important for each of us to understand that we are always a part of something. It's such a challenge in America to talk about, we celebrate this notion of individualism as if it's you know heroic and isolating and so on, mm-hmm. but each of us is always connected to something, right? Even the word individual, let me get geeky for a minute. The word individual is the smallest measure of the whole. And the question is, do we understand who our whole is so that we can be fully whole, wholeness, right, in the way in which we're relating to each other? So I really appreciate where you just went because it brings me to the whole focus of this, which is your work Mm -hmm. on loneliness. So I believe personally, we're getting into me where I didn't really intend to. I believe that I had all the experiences that I had leading up to where I am today to give me life experiences, to give me a understanding that would allow me to do the very work that I'm doing today, to be a messenger for a message that basically says we need to transform how we lead people. We need to bring more heart into leadership. I never would have understood it. I never would have I even approached it. You know, it wouldn't even have entered into my consciousness had I not had those experiences. So in a somewhat yeah. perverse way, I'm grateful for those experiences. So as I'm reading your book, I'm thinking, I wonder if Nilifer was the same way. Like if you look back on this and you say, well, there was some skid screes for me by the administrator at the school who's basically helping you give you some money so you don't have worries about food and a place to sleep and then getting you jobs. And so now it's just put one foot in front of another and off you go. But where did this bring you? What was the lesson that got you to loneliness? So first of all, I love it that that we just ought to pause and talk about brokenness for a second, that, you know, sometimes we can look at something and see the imperfection of how it was broken, or we can use Leonard Cohen's line, which is that's how the light gets in, Mm -hmm. right? That crack is how the light gets in. And I think both of us are saying that our early experiences have shaped who we are, which is, by the way, I think true for everyone. And I want to talk about this interconnectedness as I understand onlyness, so onlyness, let me at least define it and then come back to this notion of interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. So onlyness, each of us stands in a spot in the world, only one stands in. And from that spot, singular but not separate to the world, you end up being able to contribute that which only you can. It is the combination of history and experience, that rootedness of where you come from, but also your visions and hopes for what is possible. And you kind of picture both sides, like the lotus flower, like the rootedness, and then how you're growing towards the light, both sides. And the reason I define it that way is because I think sometimes we think about our formative experience as the reason why we do things. And Mark, I would argue that for both of us, right, that you and I have both been shaped by very definitive moments, but it is as much the light that we're growing towards that informs why we give a shit about what we give a shit about. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this onlyness, this idea came to me probably, I mean, the first time I coined the word was 2011. I Google searched it. No one had used the word other than O-N-L-I-N-E-S-S for a Johnny Cash song Hmm. where he's rhyming it with loneliness, right? If you're the only one, 
you'll be lonely. And I was noticing that whenever we are the only one in work, whether it's like, I'll just give a couple examples. If you're the only woman in a boardroom, almost always likely, like that's a pretty anomalous position, you'll be called quote unquote unique, when really what they mean to say is the entire room is white guys and you're the only woman in the room. So that quote unquote makes you unique and or the only one, but what's being centered is the room. And I was like, how do you center and actually notice the value creation capacity of each of us, not through the lens of otherness, but simply because of that spot in the world, only one stance. So it's a construct in my head that is really trying to get to this notion that each of us, that all 7.8 billion of us have the capacity to add value. And the question isn't that, which is, you know, a lot of people start there like, well, like, well, do they have a degree or do they have the right experience? And I'm like, nope. That's not the premise of the question. The premise of the question is everyone has value to add. And then the onus goes to, do you have the systems and scaffolding in place in order to enable each of us to be able to add value? And that's the big toggle that I'm making so that we go from the scarcity mindset, just a few of us get through that turnstile of progress to a place where capacity is really opened up. In my own experience, this appreciation for what you described is rare in business. And I think, you know, from a leadership perspective, you have this beautiful appreciation for the uniqueness of every person on the planet. And I think your number you just gave me was 7.8 billion human beings. You think they all have a distinct point of view that's a function of their own unique life experiences. And this idea that everyone has something only they can offer that's really what you mean by onlyness. Mm. And so I'd like for you to drill down a little bit further and realize, you know, this is a leadership podcast. So how would you offer that up to managers, leaders, CEOs listening in, in terms of expanding their own leadership capacity by recognizing the uniqueness, the unique contributions that every single person that works for them can bring? I mean, I think we tend to diminish oh, that person, they're only in accounting or that person, they're right. Right. We just sort of like lose sight of their humanity, which is a big focus of this podcast. But really what's the beauty of what you're arguing is see what makes everyone special and draw that out. Well, and so let's, you know, a little context of why I came up with the construct is I had been sitting in rooms inside companies, helping them do turnarounds and market expansion opportunities. So just some examples all of uh, I helped Symantec figure out how to defend against Microsoft when they did an assault in the security space to helping preserve that business. I helped Nokia's leadership team decide to exit because they weren't as successful in the mobile space as they needed to be. And in order to keep that team together, it was time for them to exit that role. I helped create the Creative Suites product that Adobe has as their main product line and to help them understand that people really wanted full integration and that project name was Spamoni. The code name was Spamoni, which is, you know, all the colors of the ice cream put together. I introduced the first Apple web server, the first WYSIWYG software, something like, you know, decisions, right? And I share all that because I would go into companies, whether it was Adobe or Nokia or Microsoft or Google or whatever, and they would been struggling with whatever market expansion problem they'd been having for um, two, three, four years by the time I actually showed up. And they had already hired a McKinsey and a band. They had already tried to solve the problem themselves. And I would walk in and say, okay, so we're going to run the process, Mark. And we're going to run the process. Imagine you're the leader. 
And they would be like, of course, like, why the heck would I want to run the process, right? Because process is considered boring. And, and then as soon as we signed off, I said, okay, so you're going to write an email to the whole organization, like division or the company or whatever, and say, anyone who wants to come help us solve this problem, come. Like a come and play note. And I remember to a T, every leader that I've ever turned and asked this question to, they sort of look at me like, are you crazy? Because in their mind, what they hear me asking for is chaos. And a time waste, right? Oh, absolutely. And I would turn to them and I'd say, listen, the reason you're stuck is because there's someone here in the organization who has not told you what the actual problem is because you're not all stupid. The reason you haven't succeeded isn't because people aren't working hard or because you're stupid. It is because you are missing some fundamental insight as to what the situation is. So we cannot go to there because we don't know where we are here. So let's actually spend some time figuring that out. And I promise you it'll work out. And so here's the thing that will happen. So the disgruntled salesperson will show up and complain about, here's why I can't sell the product, blah, blah, blah. And somewhere in there is a nugget for why the situation is what it is. Or it could be the customer sales rep saying, I get this call all the time. It's always this. And it's in listening to those specifics that all of a sudden we see the elephant for what it is in the room. Like, oh, here's where we are. And it's when we can all look at it together and go, yep, here's where we are. And we have those insights from anywhere, quite possibly everywhere, right, in the organization that you can then go, ah, okay, now we understand it. And therefore, we can also get super creative about how we might solve it. And so the thing I would say to all the leaders who are listening in is, how much are you basically saying there is a quote unquote right person to have in the room versus those people who are interested in helping you solve the challenge, helping you identify what comes next. And it's the difference between sort of filtering out versus funneling in. How'd you learn this? Oh, I mean, it was just literally like practice, right? So the reason I started doing this particular model was because I was sitting there watching companies struggle and I was going in to help them do that turnaround. And I was like, well, I'm pretty damn sure there's not the right people in the room. And also like to get execution capacity, people actually all lined up so it could execute together. That has to involve a collaborative process. So I just instinctively went towards let's involve the right people. And right meaning like all people. Yeah, but you said instinctive. That's not instinctive or you wouldn't be successful in going into all these companies because they would be doing this themselves. Well, it's instinctive to me, I guess, because I was so used to understanding what it meant to not be heard. There you go. Right. So this is exactly it. So by the time I became an admin at Apple, I was all of... I don't know, 22 years old, 23 years old, something now. And in between, I'm skipping a little story here. So I'm going to go back and fill it in. So I get ejected from the family. I start going to community college full time. I get jobs. So I basically live on campus for all intents and purposes because every job of mine is on campus, right? So I'm just hanging out all the time. And I'm in the student body. And at one point, I get asked to go meet the president of the college. And I think I'm in trouble, by the way. So funny. My natural instinct is somebody in charge wants to talk to me. What did I do? It has to be me. Right. It has to be me. And I, I show up like totally like ready to defend some decision or whatever. And I had apparently written an opinion piece in the, the paper, which is called La Vaz, The Voice. And uh, I had written some piece of paper about how the college was trying to raise the administration fees without asking the student body to participate in how those student fees would be spent. And I said, that's if you call it student fees, it's fine. Call it something else. But if you think it's our fees and we don't have control over how it's spent, then it's not our fees. You know, you're using the wrong nomenclature. 
for basically taxing us, right? And so it's a taxation without representation argument. And he, apparently the president of the college, said, you know, we're looking for someone to sit on the statewide board that's going to be responsible for changing how community colleges will work in the state of California. Later, it became AB 1725. So it's a piece of legislation that would change community colleges from trade schools to the first step in higher education. And this hasn't happened at this point, so I'm dating myself again. And, uh, and he says, would you be willing to go sit on that and represent our college, but be the student representative for the state of California? So I did that role for a couple of years, got appointed by the governor to another board, yada, yada, got the bill passed. So I had some experience that was pretty anomalous to what most people leaving college would have. But you also had an instinct to give people voice. So you're looking at the school and you're saying, hey, we're collecting these dollars from these students and we're going to spend it the way we want to. And you're saying, hey, if these are our dollars, then we have a voice or we should at least have a voice in how that money gets spent. Right. Even at 30, most people weren't thinking. Right. That. So you're at a junior college and you're writing an editorial saying, not so fast, fellas. I know, right? right? So, so interesting. That's the back. theme of your life. It's it the theme seems of my life me. is about why are we not listening to those you think don't deserve, quote unquote, to be heard. So I show at Apple computer as an admin because, of course, at this point, I still haven't even gotten my four year degree. And I'm sitting in rooms and noticing that no one now pays attention to me. Not because, by the way, I don't have anything to say. They haven't even like, thought about whether or not I have anything to say, but literally because I do not have a degree, literally because I have this role. And I'm thinking, what you're noticing is my vocational identity and not my ideas. So they were screening me out, right, based on not having the right title or not having the right credential line. And I'm like, I kind of thought I had something to add. And by the way, weeks prior to this, I'd been sitting across from senators negotiating for interests and stuff. So I found it just fascinating how much I was being screened out simply because I was sitting in a particular chair in a particular hallway, right? And I thought, this is kind of crazy. So early on, and mind you, who knew if my ideas were good in that meeting? So I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying I noticed that they weren't even getting heard. And so over the course of my career, what I've just been noticing is we often just listen to the people we quote unquote expect to have the good ideas. And we're not listening to probably 60, 70% of the room. And we're dismissing them for a variety of reasons, right? Maybe it's that we're used to only listening to the loudest person in the room. Maybe it's we're used to having the people who are educated and credentialed. Maybe it's that senior leaders only. Senior leaders only, mm -hmm. right? I and mean, we all know this. Yeah. And so this is the big impetus is to go, you know what? We're probably over-indexed on one set of ideas. And if we're stuck which by the way, most of us are, then why not try a more expansive approach to who could help us solve this problem? And by the way, they're sitting right in front of you. <laughs> so it's not like you have to go find them. They're there. Well, but it's a mindset, it's a right? Mindset. It doesn't matter if they're sitting in front of you when you are at Apple. And we think Apple's one of these really enlightened organizations, and they're just as dismissive as anyone else is, right? The way you just described it. Well, it's so funny, right? I mean, I worked at Apple from 88, 89 to 96, 97. And I'll tell you that it's as competitive a place, et cetera. But even then, I look back at the anomaly it was that I got handed this revenue responsibility for a, a small business at the time was $2 million, And I got told, go grow that. And because everyone thought it was just a shit project, they basically were like, sure, you can have that because like nobody else wants it kind of thing. But the fact that I even could raise my hand and say, yep, I'll go take it and see if I can grow it. And we were able to grow it as a team from 2 to $180 million by the time Steve comes back. 
which is why I get to go present it, in fact, to Steve, to go save the entire division. I get to be the one to present. They let you do it? Right. Well, that's good. Yeah. So, I mean, like, so yes and no, right? Like, it's all a spectrum. And the reason I came up with this construct mark of onlyness is I'm really trying to show the framework. The framework we currently have in business today is what we might call meritocracy. We believe we already hear from the people who deserve to be heard. And instead of offering an alternative framework, which is to say, each of us in the framework of onlyness can have something to offer. And the question is whether or not the business is set up to do it. And that's why the book, The Power of Onlyness, really goes through the three steps of you, how do you claim that thing? Us, how do you do it so that the entire team is capable, not just you, right? So we're starting to think about how do we relate to each other? How do we have trust systems in place? How do we negotiate interests, which is the us section? And then together, so how do we start to act as one without turning down the dial of the agency and autonomy we've just enabled in the system? And so I'm really talking through the steps so that onlyness is in every part of it. And you don't sort of enable the creative idea at the beginning, but then in the middle go, no, 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 now it's back to me. My idea is the only idea that counts. Exactly. I have a question for you. This is going to seem out of context, but going back to earlier part of the conversation where you said that you believe everyone was shaped by their upbringing, you have a particular drive, right? So, I mean, we don't have all of the pieces of how you managed to get through college and go on to these great jobs and so forth. But what's clear is you did it. Mm-hmm. What's the drive? What's the inner motivation in Miller for a Merchant? That's such a good question. I think that the visual that's coming to mind is when I was really little, like six, seven, eight, I had watched my grandfather, who was a judge, judge back in Ahmedabad. So judges there play a slightly different role than here culturally, which is they're not just sort of, they don't just sit on the judiciary. They play this sort of community arbitrator kind of role. So I would get to go back to India and sit on his lap while he did this thing. So he would eat his breakfast. He was very opinionated, like, you know, wanted like his own space and blah, blah, blah. And he would have his chai. And then, and then he would say, okay, now it's time. And so it was whatever schedule he wanted. But what would happen is people would queue up outside the door of his home, like around the block in groups, like, you know, sort of disputing groups. And they have to show up and sort of stand in line. And then he would let me sit at his, at his lap and just like, listen. And I was just fascinated by people. You know, I was like, and I want to be with him. So it was more about me being with him and me watching. And on one side of the table, like one disputing party and the other, like he would be like, tell me. And then he would let them talk and he would ask a bunch of questions. And then the decision that he would come up with, he would always get sort of frustrated at some point and be like, I don't know if this would be considered like, it would be like a swear word almost, but it would be like the equivalent of shut up. So the way you say it is true. It's like an Indian version of Judge Judy. Yeah, you're describing. So, right. And, um, but he would say, sure. Which would mean like basically shut the fuck up. Like that's like if you say yeah, it was I've had enough. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and then he would like rule. And I was fascinated by these people who came in and really they had never really heard the other person's perspective because each one was so interested in sort of presenting why they were right. And I was always fascinated by what he would see by asking the questions he would ask. And how there was always this like different shared understanding in the room. And so I suspect if you say like, where did I, where did I get some of this? I think just watching the value of a question, reshaping a conversation probably has informed more of my life than 
you know, I probably even give it credit for. And today I'm writing, in fact, funny enough, I'm writing a column that people submit work-related questions and I'm trying to figure out how to reframe what it is I'm seeing through the lens of aliveness and onlyness, right? How do we actually like change the work culture, not just change your specific situation, but change the work culture. Sort of an homage to your grandfather. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. I hadn't even thought of that just now when you asked, like, what do you think is, so that that's what popped to mind. So yeah. Well, but you were an astute child and you allowed that to influence you. And I think these are helpful. One of my earliest guests was Kim Powell mm. and she had done all of this great research on what's the common denominators of high achieving CEOs. And interestingly, it's not education. Most of them didn't go to Ivy League schools. A lot of them went to junior colleges and didn't get MBAs, you know, sort of motley group. But one of the common denominators was this profound interest in what other people had to say. A curiosity mm -hmm. was really the broadness. And so as you describe this, it's no surprise that this has made you really successful and unique because the lesson that you just described from sitting on your grandfather's lap or next to him while he arbitrated was that if you listen to other people's perspectives, you may change how your own perspective influences how you behave mm -hmm. and come to a better settlement come to a better outcome. I mean, this is the laws of negotiation is to understand what the other party really wants and to be patient with that rather than adamantly saying, this is the way it has to go because I'm right. And that's what we normally do. I'm really glad I asked the question because from a leadership standpoint, it's it's evocative. Yeah, right. How much are we willing to even step outside our own comfort zone? Because I think the reason people don't listen is because we're so damn afraid that if we listen to them, that we won't be able to remember what we care about. Wow. Really? You think that's what it is? Or do you think that we'll be persuaded to see it in a different point of view? Like, oh, like, I guess I had that wrong. I mean, are we afraid of being ashamed? I mean, you just said that you think that we would forget what we were really there to, to hold up. And I'm not so sure that that's true. Well, I think it's that, you know, when I say there's a singular spot in the world only on which one stands, I think we're so trying to find that center ourselves and that we think if we listen really hard to someone else, we'll decenter ourselves, decenter our own space. Instead of being able to hold both as true, mm -hmm. yes. we'll walk away from ourselves. And by the way, we do it all the time. Like I joke about with friends, you know, how they can just challenge me a little and I'll walk away from all the ideas I hold as true. I mean, I can do it for like 10 minutes or I can do it for days, but I'll have someone really challenge me hard on something. And then I'll be like, really, is that what I believe? And I have these like disorientations, I might call it, because I've lost my own center. And I think that's why listening so hard is because we wonder if we lean into that other voice that maybe we'll topple off our own, like that wobble, weeble wobble doll that we won't be able to bounce back up into ourselves. And that's been my observation. And when leaders get freaked out, it's not because they're not curious. It's that they're afraid of losing their own clarity. This conversation has gotten very philosophical, which I'm actually really delighted. And so it allows me to go into some things that as I was reading your book, I thought, yeah, I'd love to ask that question. So here's one. I want to talk about self-acceptance, which doesn't seem to be mm -hmm. your problem. But nevertheless, you had to get there. So I'll set this up this way. You say that each of us is responsible for owning who we are on the deepest level. And that if we can't value what we alone have to offer, no one else is going to do it, right? Yeah. Why would somebody else if we don't? So both of these insights suggest to me that you've 
done what I'll just refer to as the deep work. (laughs) Yeah, well, maybe that's part of it, right? So if that's what it is, I'll call it deep work um, that it takes to fully know yourself, which I think is just a huge aspect of becoming a great leader. And so can you describe what that process was for you? And why, if you do believe that every leader needs to go through something similar? Yeah, so I have done therapy. I can't imagine anyone doing really good work in the world without being able to clear themselves of bullshit, right? And and whatever form that bullshit shows up as. Self-awareness is definitely a part of this. I think the piece you're really drawn to it, and I want to just kind of come back to the sentence because you just said it, and I'd, it's that until we value ourselves, we can't get valued. And it's such a weird circular loop when you kind of think about it, right? Because sometimes we're like, we'll say something and everyone in the room will dismiss it. So a part of us is sort of like, well, maybe it wasn't that good, right? Because we're social beings. So we get signals from each other. This is how human beings survive in the world. We get signals from each other about run this way away from the lion, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we need each other. We do seek each other's signals. And in fact, that's what's shaped us as human beings. That's why we don't have to reinvent the wheel as we rely on stuff that other people have built for us but the thing is then so then when someone says to us you know or ignores us or whatever then we have to sit there and go hmm who are my people so i, I wrote about this recently and just in a, in a micro so I'll, I'll share this recent story so i was giving a talk it was maybe to 100 200 ceo type folks and a small group and the people who are hosting the event had some feedback for me as we were going through the prep stuff. One was they thought the topic of loneliness was too abstract given the pandemic, that it should be far more specific what we're trying to talk about and sort of, you know, add value right away. And so change the focus of the talk. Could you also please, you know, as long as you're changing that, don't make it so abstract about innovation, talk about how we solve like tomorrow's problem. And while you're at it, what was the other thing they asked me? So, and, and oh, I had wanted to do like a 15 minute keynote and a 45 minute discussion of application, which I thought would allow people to then really figure out what is the, you know, it's enough to have the peanut butter in the jar. How do I put it on my bread and, you know, think about how to. But they're basically recreating the entire thing before you've given anything. They're saying, oh, yeah, we, you know. exactly. Like, okay. they're like, Okay, so, and the guy who's doing it, the guy who's doing all the talking is the other presenter who is a business analyst type person, Mm -hmm. and no one interrupts. So there's probably another 10 people on the call, people who've hired me and the CEO of the organization, blah, blah, blah. Like, no one says anything. And I'm sitting there listening to his feedback, and of course, like, they know their audience. They know their audience way more than I do. All I know is what I, you know, my little end of the world, right? And mind you, this idea of onlyness has been celebrated as one of the defining ideas that will shape the next century of work. And so and like, there's definitely awards and things I could point to, but you know, any day is a new day kind of thing. And I'm listening to their feedback and I'm like, huh. And so I sit there and I think about it and I write to my speakers bureau person and I say, you know, like, here's all the feedback I'm getting. What do you think? And she wrote back, Vanessa Friedman is her name from fresh speaker. She writes back saying, actually, that's why they hired you. Like you are not, about, you know, running from the building in the middle of a pandemic, you are literally showing people how do you build brand new. And so that whatever nugget of insight we do now shapes the next five years. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm not talking about the fire. I'm not talking about the ashes. I'm talking about the acorn and how to grow the acorn. And so as soon as she and I went back and forth, she was like, but that's not why they hired you. Remember why they hired you, right? And so what she was basically saying is, remember who you are. 
And so the social construct of someone who has known my body of work and knows what kind of value consistently gets, you know, given feedback as to why I'm there is saying to me, but this is this, you know, kind of thing. And here's the thing. So here's this one guy who, by the way, was condescending as all get out and basically telling me, no, none of your ideas matter, right? Effectively, I'm generalizing, but none of your ideas matter. And could you please do exactly what I'm planning on doing in the call so you can be more like me? And all the people in the call say nothing, any one of which could have stepped up. And I could have easily abandoned myself if I had just taken his feedback. And, you know, what do I know? I don't know his audience. I mean, I think you had to have known instinctively that you were getting bad guidance here and he was steering you to make himself feel comfortable not to help you do a better presentation. For sure. Like, yes, and, right? It's one of those things where this is where you're talking about the CEO, like, not necessarily want to get new input. It's like, yes, and. So I want to always be open to new input. I want to really listen to what people have to say. I want to give room. For, I can't dismiss people who are just being an arrogant asshat. And, and I mean, like, it could have been that. But what if it's not? What if I'm wrong? And so there's this moment of uncertainty that if you give yourself over to curiosity, always happens. The idea of what if I'm wrong is something that has come up many times lately in this podcast. This notion that mm-hmm. if you just allow a little humility here, you may be steered into doing something that's even better than you would have had you been resistant, right? Right. But that really wasn't what was going on here. Well, I mean, like, but you don't know in that moment, you know, I'm telling you the story from this angle, right? But in that moment, you have to sit there and go, huh, what am I wrong? And it's like with great humility, with great curiosity to go, huh. And this is where going back to this very notion of interdependence versus independence, none of us fucking figure out what the hell we're doing all by ourselves. We always do it in construct with other people. We just have to decide who our people are and be much more clear about the people who surround us because who surrounds us affects us. And so this inner voice of how do I start to value what it is only I care about is also about how do I choose people in my universe who are not just about their own interests, right? So so that one day, Mark, you and I will develop a relationship and I can call you and say, hey, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Right? And you and I could count on each other in a very particular way because we have a relationship. I have you know a core group of friends now in this world where I go, is this or is it that? Is it this or is it that, you know, and I'm getting a chance to balance. And in that balance, I get to go, oh, maybe I could learn from this one thing. Maybe I could be more practical in this way. Right. So so leaving room gives me the opportunity to keep picking up what does work, but not to abandon myself. I love that language, leaving room. Yeah, that's wonderful because that's exactly what you're doing. You're just leaving a little room. So let me ask you. Did your speaking agent then go back to the client and say, hey, you guys are trying to change a peach into a plum or? <laughs> Actually, she must have gave me advice about stuff. And then she did do one piece, which I thought was just like, I couldn't do it all by myself. I was really clear that, and this was like early days of the pandemic. I was really clear that no one needed to listen to anyone for 45 minutes. Like, I just thought that was one of the stupider ideas I've ever heard. <laughs> and that I was really, really clear about. And I was like, can you please go back to them and get that to work and get them to agree on format? And so we changed everyone's format. That was the other thing, right? So I wasn't just affecting my work. I was affecting everyone's work. And I said, can you get them to change format? And they did. And questions were unbelievable. We got something like 30 questions. And in the Q&A, and they were like unbelievably strong, good questions so that we got through like half of them. 
And the CEO, in fact, who had, who had listened in on this was like, oh, my God, this is the best thing we've ever done. But it was because of format. So I was really grateful. She did that part. And I did the rest, which was to stay centered right in my own work. And this is where I just really want to draw this out. Most of us think we have to own our own voice sort of in spite of other people. And I actually said, well, it's because of other people. It's the question, though, is do you understand who your people are? I love it. I have two questions I want to ask you now, just to make sure that we really complete this discussion. And so the first one is, how do we fully define and claim our own personal onlyness? And again, because we have leaders listening, how do we as leaders identify the onlyness in the people that we manage? Yeah, such a good question. So let's do both sides. So first is, how do you claim that which is true for yourself? I have, uh, by the way, an OnlyS Canvas and Mark, we can link to it. And so I've done, you know, like the business model canvas, I've done like a super in three questions. How do you get to this? I think one of the things we most of us, uh, the hang up is we're fine about our rootedness. Like we're fine about like, here's where I've come from. Most of us are not good at claiming something that no one else sees as possible. So I remember a financial executive like one of the big banks i was doing a workshop with them and this leader came up to me and said hey i have this idea for the underbanked you know you were talking about claiming unusual ideas i have this idea for the underbanked the people who basically go to those cash and carry kind of places and i have a way to serve that audience here's what it is and explained it to me in great detail and it was like apparently the cost structure the reason banks don't normally serve that audience is because they they, the cost structure is too high to handle that volume. And she said, here's how we could handle it that would really work. And I said, oh, this is fascinating. Like it would reach a whole different group of customers and also serve a social good. What do you think? Are you going to tell the group? And she said, I'll never forget it because the look of horror goes on her face. She's like, no way would I tell this group. And I'm like, why would you not? That seems like you're pretty excited about it. You seem clear. And, you know, why? And she goes, and she looks around and she points. She goes, Notice that person, they're wearing an Hermes tie. Notice that person, look at the bag they're carrying. And what she was doing was saying, in this room, what's valued is wealth. And even though she had earned that wealth up to this point, she did not come from that heritage. And so she didn't want to reveal why she cared that she'd been raised by a single mom who had been gouged for years in these cash check, cashing mm -hmm. places. And so she didn't want to reveal who she was, and she didn't think this group would there forget it without her revealing, right? So she was unwilling to claim an idea because it wasn't already in the room. And this is the whole we're all social beings piece is we're afraid, right? And for good reason, by the way, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, belonging precedes originality, yeah. So Maslow's hierarchy has like food, shelter, belonging, and then way up two levels higher is sort of, you know, new creative ideas. So this thing about claiming something when no one else in the room is claiming it is the reason why most of us don't. So I just want to ask those who are listening, like, what is it you would claim? And here's how I ask that question when I'm just working one on one with people. I go, imagine you're in a Disney movie. And in that Disney movie that turns, you know, pumpkins and the carriages and mice and the horses and your magic wand can do the same. It can do whatever. And in this case, it won't revert back at midnight. And you can do anything you want to do. You can change anything, transform anything, make anything happen. What would you do? And in that pause, almost everyone has an idea come to mind. And I say, well, what would you then do to go make that happen? 
that's the one side of the coin. Want me to keep going? Yes, but I'm going to insert being conscious of the fact that you've got the Hermes tie or, you know, the expensive watch or whatever. That's probably not the best way to set this up. The best way, I think, is just to say, allow people to express themselves without judgment that's right. so that you can actually hear those voices so that you create a safe environment where people feel like, hey, even if the group doesn't think that we're going to go down this low income checking account route, at least I can say it and no one on my team is going to look at me like you just said what? Right. And so here's the way to do it, right? You actually went there perfectly. So, so Mark, instead of saying, I want to hear the crazy idea, what you say is, if we could do anything without any consequence, if we could just change the banking industry, not that we would do, but if you would change the banking industry, what would you change? And you would say, I want to hear from everybody. And in fact, let's do it on analog system would be post-its. And of course, there's tons of technologies now where you can do it without having to reveal who you are, polling kind of input and say, what would you change? And then let's go through those ideas and just explore them to kind of see where the edges are. Right. And now what you're doing is saying, I want to hear it all. I want to hear it no matter how quote unquote crazy it is. And the way you can set it up is I don't know if we're going to do it, but let's just like play. Right. So it's such a lighter way of holding it. And then people can be like, oh, my whole career's not on state. Good. Okay. <laughs> this is playtime. Play right. Time, right? No, it's a great reframe. And I think play is such an interesting and underutilized construct in business. And also just the whole thing of, I want to hear it all, right? Like you're doing it while I'm standing here. Open arms. What's the way in which you can show up into that room, open arms? And you do it over time. So it doesn't happen the first time, by the way, because most teams don't, you know, they've been conditioned at work yeah, right. to be afraid, right? And, mm-hmm. and for good reason. And so it shows up over time when you show up in this sort of way of saying, I want to hear it. And then you make sure you actually structure it. So leaders who come into the room and present for 45 minutes and then leave 10 minutes for questions is different than the leader who says, I'm going to talk for a few minutes and tee up the question. And then I want to make sure we go all the way around the room at least twice. That's fantastic. So, Nilofer, we have a tradition on the podcast where we take a brief break from the conversation and we ask our guests a rapid succession of questions aimed at learning a little more about them, their personal interests, your personal interests, influences, and life philosophy. And we call this the heartbeat round because all the questions require brief and instinctive answers. Answer one in a heartbeat is the goal. So if you're game, I got about a dozen or so questions and I'm ready to go if you are. Go. Something that gives you hope. Something that gives me hope. It is that generation of people coming up who's saying, nope, we will not accept how you've done things through compromise before. We will change things. So it's the the Greta's of the world. Fantastic. Your favorite place on earth? Yosemite. Mine too, by the way. Mm-hmm. True. At the Iwani. Ah, uh-huh. got married there. Did you really? Mm-hmm. Got oh, married in the chapel, on the chapel in the, you know, on the grounds of Yosemite. Sure. And, then, yeah. and then did the reception at the Iwani. And in fact, we're going back again in our anniversary in, the, in November. Yeah. And I've hiked Half Dome a bunch of times. So in fact, uh, you know, it's one of, it is one of my favorite places because of all the beautiful hiking to be had. Oh, that's great. Well, we got a lot in common. One thing in life you're really glad you did. Therapy. A book that should be required reading for every human. Mm, Parker Palmer. Let your life speak. I have that book sitting in front of me right now. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I just got it at the library, believe it or not. So, oh my God, um, such a good book. The most underestimated and undervalued leadership practice of all. 
I'll call it overflow. So it's a roomy line. Never give from the depths of your well, but from your overflow. And I think some of us lead in scarcity. We lead in fear. And in order for us to lead in love and lead with joy, we have to recognize that we have to fill our own well first. Wow. No one's ever quoted Rumi before. So thank you. That's great. Another person's onlyness you greatly admire. Ava DuVernay. A lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. The lesson I wish I'd learned earlier in life is not to abandon myself. Not to abandon yourself? Mm-hmm. Meaning? Well, I have uh, two parents who abandoned me pretty early in life for different reasons. And I learned how to abandon my own ideas, myself, just to seek acceptance into the social unit. And in the process, I'll abandon all the things I care about. Because I think in order to be loved, I have to give up who I am. Glad I asked. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Fear. People are operating in a real scarcity construct. Uh, There's only so much power to be had, and there's only so much. We're only going to be able to go through that turnstile of progress one at a time. And so it's you or me, baby. And uh, it's just this real scarcity mindset, fear of scarcity. The greatest gift you've ever received? Love. One subject you encourage people to bone up on? Agency and how agency works. A prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true. I believe one day we will be able to value what each of us brings. Your favorite character from fiction? Mm, Meg, who's the character in Wrinkle in Time. She, uh, she saves the world by believing and seeing her brother for who he originally was and not the person he's become as he's been absorbed by it. Skill improvement you're working on right now. 2020 is the year I said I would get better as a writer. And I just finished writing something that I can honestly say is the best work I've ever done. So it's the practice of writing and really giving myself over to that. Congratulations. And finally, your synonym for the word heart. Love. These are wonderful, wonderful answers. So and very, very thoughtful. So thank you very much for doing that with me. Thank you. Before we go, Nilifer, I want to turn the stage over to you and ask you, is there some important insight in your book, Onlyness, that we didn't cover? I love this conversation, by the way, and I'm always hoping that each one is unique and different and that they don't create sort of like, oh, it's the same themes, the same ideas, and and this accomplished that in spades. Mm -hmm. I also want to make sure that we leave our audience with a real clear understanding of what you mean by onlyness and how an understanding of it can enrich their own life and enrich their own leading of other people. Yeah. So I think... We've talked about what it is and why it's so important that it unlocks, you know, capacity that's sitting in front of us. That isn't about credentialing, but capacity. And the other piece is it really puts a new lens on people who are often viewed through the lens of otherness, right? So sometimes we screen people out based on gender, certainly race, definitely age, often So just think about all the ways in which we sometimes look at someone and we presuppose what it is they have of value to offer because we're all biased, right? We're all biased. That's the reality. And so the question is, how do we actually shift from otherness to onlyness? And then how do we build the systems, scaffolding, cultural norms, whatever you want to call it, to get to that place where we say each of us has something of value to offer? 
And it's my job as a leader to figure out how to tap into it because it benefits the business. It benefits innovation. It benefits creativity. It benefits psychological safety, all of those things. It benefits execution, right? And so it's that toggle from otherness to onlyness and to just realize originality comes in every shape and form. But right now there's this real irony of originality where some people are seen as quote unquote different and some people are seen as distinctly themselves. And that's the opportunity I think that all of us as leaders have. I love that. Thank you so very much. It's just been a real joy for me to have this conversation with you and so very, very grateful that you joined us. So on behalf of my entire audience, Nilifer, thank you so very, very much. Thank you, Mark. Go do good work. Thank you for this conversation. And I hope it's not the end of our relationship. I hope it's a start. I hope so too. You're wonderful. Very, very wonderful meeting you. And thank you so much for doing this, Nilifer. We'll be in touch. Yes, do stay in touch. Thanks, Mark. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Before we say goodbye, I want to thank my wonderful team, including Carrie Finnessy, Ken Boynton, Josh Richards, and Susan DeRoche, and the special bell ring for my sound engineer and producer, Eric Oz, who does some rather remarkable work behind the scenes to make each episode come out great. And these remain very weird and unsettling times, so I encourage you to care deeply about the people you manage. All of us need as much support as we can get right now. And I thank you very much for listening. And I hope as always that you'll continue to introduce us to your friends and colleagues and help us build our audience. And finally, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.